Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the privilege uh, that I have this morning to stand before these, my brothers and sisters, uh, and present in some form uh, some history, some context, some portions of scripture, uh, and to look at an incredible subject. Uh, And Lord, I am Uh, So in need of your strength and enablement and wisdom uh, in what to share, what not to share, uh, where to go with some of these particular thoughts. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would use uh, what we are to look at together today in a great way in each life. Uh, There are perhaps some here this morning uh, that uh, do not know uh, any of these matters. Spiritual things are foreign to them. I pray that for them there would be a serving of truth in the gospel uh, that would be irrefutable to their conscience today, that they would believe the gospel and be saved. For others in our midst, Lord, perhaps coming from difficult, uh, turbulent trials that have beset them this week or in the past, I pray that the lives of these individuals to whom we will look would provide a great sense of comfort and strength knowing that others have gone before and struggled. Others have wrestled with all forms of physical and mental ailments and have had tribulation heaped upon them. Lord, for those who are hungry for spiritual truth, may they be filled today. Lord, may each of us go from this place with a greater awareness, a greater appreciation, a greater love for the treasure that is the Scripture. And so, Lord, today help us. Help me, I pray. Uh, Thank you for uh, these who have attended, for the strength and energy you've given them to be here. Uh, May they receive uh, not just a blessing, not just encouragement, uh, but may they also be challenged and convicted to, uh, to set things in order in their own spiritual lives, if that is what is required today. May you be glorified in every aspect of what we do. uh, In Jesus' name. Amen. Sometime on October the 31st, 1517, a 33-year-old man approached the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. In his hand was a hammer, some nails and a manuscript which contained 95 theses which condemned the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church and particularly the doctrine of penance or indulgences. At this time, the door of a church building functioned as a bulletin board for the academic and church-related announcements. Unbeknown to the author of this document, the sound of that hammer striking the door would soon be heard around the world and ultimately lead to the greatest transformation of Western society since the gospel was first preached by the apostles. The man in question is Martin Luther. He was born on November the 10th, 1483, in Eilerben, Saxony, in southeast Germany. Luther's father, Hans, had experienced some success as a miner and an ore smelter. Hans knew that mining was a tough trade, and he wanted his promising son to have a better life. He wanted him to become a lawyer. In 1484, Hans moved his family to Mansfeld, where at the age of seven, Martin Luther was enrolled in school. At 14, Luther went north 
to Magdeburg, where he continued his studies. It was here that Martin Luther earned his master's degree in the shortest amount of time permitted by the university. His academic prowess and oratory skills earned him the nickname of the philosopher. In July 1505, Luther had a life-changing experience that set him on a new course to becoming a monk. He was walking on the road to Erfurt when a severe thunderstorm arose. He feared for his life and was very nearly killed by a bolt of lightning which struck the ground near him. In the midst of this storm, Luther cried out to St. Anne, the patron saint of miners, Save me, St. Anne, and I'll become a monk. The storm subsided and he was rescued. Although the decision bitterly disappointed Luther's father, he had made a promise and he must fulfill it. The first few years of monastic life were particularly, particularly unpleasant as he did not discover the enlightenment or fulfilment his soul so desperately craved. As a Roman Catholic monk, Luther was terrorized by God's wrath over sin. His conscience being extremely sensitive led him to seek justification by means of self-deprivation and self-flagellation. He would engage in extreme fasting, long hours of prayer, frequent confessions and even staying in the freezing cold were all attempts to please God and bring comfort to his hurting soul. Luther's entire life as a monk was one grand self-salvation project. Years later, Luther wrote, If anyone could have gained heaven as a monk, I would have been among them. However, all his attempts to soothe his conscience were in vain. Finally, he decided to return to formal study in the hope that this might bring the light and illumination his troubled soul so desperately needed. In 1507, he began the study of theology at the University of Erfurt. Sometime between the years of 1508 and 1517, Luther had what he called later a tower experience because it occurred in the Tower of the Black Cloister in Wittenberg. There he was studying the scriptures and in particular the book of Romans. For some time he had been wrestling with Romans 1.17, which we read a few moments ago, which declared that he through faith is righteous shall live. He who through faith is righteous shall live. At an undisclosed moment in time, this Roman Catholic monk came to understand the difference between the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of the gospel. Let me tarry just a while longer here and read for you Luther's own confession regarding this precious moment in history. Luther writes, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was uh, placarded by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemously, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God and said, as if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners, eternally lost through original sin, are crushed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue, without having God add pain to pain by the gospel and also by the gospel threatening us with his righteousness and his wrath. 
Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and it entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. Thereupon I ran through the scriptures from memory. I also found in other terms an analogy as the work of God, that is, what God does in us, the power of God with which he makes us strong, the wisdom of God with which he makes us wise, the strength of God, the salvation of God, and the glory of God. At this moment, in the tower of the black cloister, a monk became a saint. From this time forward, Martin Luther became a champion for the long lost gospel of Jesus Christ. His 95 theses nailed to that church door was just the beginning of the Reformation. Luther was called to recant of his beliefs in 1520. He did not recant. He was excommunicated, exiled and outlawed by Charles V in 1521. He went on to translate the Bible in German wrote the larger and small catechisms, and became an accomplished hymn writer. Luther's theology centred on Christ as the word of God, the finished work of Christ on the cross, the relationship between law and the gospel, and justification by faith. To this day, Martin Luther's treatise on the book of Galatians is second to none, but his greatest work was in calling his generation and ours Back from the false teaching of a works-based salvation, traditionalism, papal authority and penance to a salvation found in the scripture alone, accomplished by grace alone, through faith alone and in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. Let me close this introduction by reading number 62 thesis of the 95, which simply says, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Wow. I was amazed. I was blown away in my study this week as I put all that together. I was in tears at moments. I was in uh, happy dances of joy. Uh, All of the emotions sprang as I studied these particular thoughts. Now, you're particularly blessed this morning as a congregation because this morning you get three introductions. Normally, you only have one and a long message. Today, you get three introductions. And so introduction number two is this. I would like to introduce you to the solar system and the plan of attack. Let me just do a quick comparison here this morning. The solar system, S-O-L-A-R, is the gravitationally bound system comprising the sun and the objects that orbit it, either directly or indirectly. Probably most of you already knew that. The sun is the centre of our solar system. 
the planets, over 61 moons, asteroids, comets, meteoroids, and other rocks and gas all orbit the sun. Still probably nothing new. Today we commence a study on a different solar system, S-O-L-A-E system. It is not a scientific or astronomical system. It is a spiritual and biblical system. It too centres around a sun. But this S-O-N is not a spinning ball of hot gas which lights up the world. It is the Son of God who is the light of the world. Similar to the physical solar system, the biblical solar system also includes luminous bodies which orbit around our precious sun, S-O-N. These are the great truths of the gospel. The spiritual moons are the lesser lights which reflect the glory of that sun. As we study this spiritual paradigm this month, it's extremely important that we do not lose sight of the central aspect of the spiritual solar, S-O-L-A-E, system, which is the sun, S-O-N, of God. Sometimes theologians, pastors, teachers and students become so enamoured with the small rocks and comets of the spiritual solar system that they lose sight of the central and glorious theme which is none other than Jesus Christ, who alone, the Bible tells us, has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16. So I've demonstrated, I hope, how the physical solar system is in some ways similar to our spiritual solar system. Now I want to show you our third introduction, which is the solar system by way of a building diagram. When I first came into contact with what you see here on the board and various other places, the five solars, which when put into a plural form is S-O-L-A-E, the solar system, When I first came in contact with these five incredible truths, I immediately began to realise how they interrelated to each other. They were interconnected. And so I started, as I often do in my study, to draw a diagram. That diagram quickly took the form of a building. And I think it's helpful to show you the building blocks which form this theological structure for us this morning. And so look up the front, if you would, for just a moment, again, for our third introduction and then we'll actually get to where we're going perhaps so first of all when you consider this solar system we begin down the bottom with what is called solar scriptura i'm giving you the latin words because that's what was known back then but i'll explain them underneath each one simply means scripture alone and as i began to form this diagram I realised that at the foundational level, at the basis of everything to do with the Reformation, was an understanding that it was the scripture alone, for which we will speak some more of in a little while. The written word of God alone. And then pillar number one, sola gratia, which means grace alone. And I can see everybody's head going like this. I had to do it like that. Because of the room I had on the PowerPoint. Grace alone. The second pillar that forms the middle here, sola fide, which is faith alone. And then the third pillar in our structure here is sola Christo, Christ alone. And these are 
The pillars, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If all of those terms are a little bit foreign to you, don't worry. They won't be by the end of the month. You'll know exactly what they mean. And then we come to the top, the covering. And interestingly, it forms an arrow as well, which points heavenward. And this is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. The covering. The foundation scripture alone, based upon grace alone, through in faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. This forms what I have called our solar system. And we are going to look at each and every one of these in some detail over the next few weeks. So the plan of attack in my fourth introduction is that we will look at the five solas of the Reformation. Each Sunday will feature a different aspect of this diagram displayed. I'll take the first two. Lucas will take the centre right in the middle, and then I'll take the last two. But today, Scripture alone. Now, before I begin, I'm just going to say this as the uh, the preface. And I'm going to read exactly what I wrote here, because I, I worded it intentionally. Please understand that the time we have together is so brief... You know where I'm going, don't you? All those regulars. And the subject matter is so vast. It's impossible for any human being to do justice to the reformers and their theology in a mere 40 to 50 minutes on a Sunday morning. I'm going to do my best to be concise. You do your best to be attentive. And may God grant us an understanding of these glorious truths, how we can discover them for ourselves and defend them with our lives. After three long introductions, here is what we're looking at. Sola Scriptura, the foundation of the Reformation. We just about have lunch now. Come back and do our take two. Here's what I'd like to do as we begin this particular study this morning. I want to give you firstly, in our first point, a brief glossary of terms. To me, this is critical. We need to understand a few terms that relate to the Reformation that you can take away and think about, get a copy of these notes or the message uh, via our simulcast and just learn them because they're going to be part of the next five weeks. The first term that you just need to know is the term lollards. Some of you think, lollard, what is a lollard? A lollard was a derogatory label given originally to the followers of John Wycliffe in the 14th century. And the term literally meant the mumblers who pray. The idea here was that these particular people would go around and their whole life was spent praying in a good way. They just prayed all the time and they became called the mumblers of prayers. And then later it was applied to all who upheld The teachings of personal faith, divine election, the authority of the scripture in the church and state. It represented those who attacked clerical celibacy, transubstantiation, indulgences and pilgrimages, all words that we'll define later. But you need to know the Lollards, these were the believers who loved God and stood for truth, but that was a derogatory label given to them. The second term that I want us to understand And this one may be a little bit harder for some. I want to explain the Roman Catholic Church. It is the largest church denomination on earth, with nearly 1.3 billion people claiming to be members or affiliates of the Catholic Church. The leader of this global religion is the Bishop of Rome, or as we know him, the Pope. 
His official full title, which I did not know before I studied, is this. Vicar of Jesus Christ, successor of the Prince of the Apostles, Supreme Pontiff of the Universal Church, Patriarch of the Latin Church, Primate of Italy, Archbishop and Metropolitan of the Roman Province, Sovereign of the Vatican City-State, Servant of the Servants of God. It'd be very hard to fit that on a label, I think. That is the official title of the leader of the Roman Catholic Church. He oversees the entire organisation with many thousands of cardinals, archbishops, bishops, priests, deacons and the laity. Although the Roman Catholic Church believes that Jesus is the Son of God, they assert many erroneous doctrines which oppose the foundational truths of Protestant, Protestantism. Some of these include... The role of the Pope as the head of the church. The truth of the scriptures only as it is interpreted by the church and tradition. The celibacy of the clergy. The necessity of the priesthood, uh, the, the priesthood in the remission of, uh, remission or forgiveness of sins. In other words, seeing a priest. The immaculate conception or sinlessness of the Virgin Mary. The infallibility of the Pope. Transubstantiation in the Eucharist, we'll talk about that later. Prayer and intercession made to the saints. The existence of purgatory, a cleansing place in the afterlife. And the ability to commit mortal sins which result in a loss of salvation and require repentance, fulfillment of the seven sacraments and ecclesiastical works or deeds. Lots of terms there, but in summary, the Roman Catholic Church is vastly different to that which the Protestant reformers stood for. And we need to understand some of that. The third term that I want you to see this morning again, just to help us understand what's going on, is the term Penance. The sacrament of penance and reconciliation is one of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. The word itself came to mean religious discipline or self-mortification as a token of repentance and atonement for some sin. Throughout the centuries, penance have taken various forms. In the first two centuries, this idea of penance was made primarily by practicing prayer, good deeds, fasting and alms giving. A new method was introduced in the seventh century called the tariff penance, whereby a sinner could pay money to the Catholic Church or the priest to purchase their atonement or the atonement of a loved one. This particular form of penance was very popular in Luther's day, and that needs to be understood when we read his writings. Finally, individual confessions were introduced in the 12th century, which is the most common form of penance in our day. These individual confessions include meeting one-on-one -on -one with a priest, disclosing the acts of sin that have been committed, and then fulfilling the requirements set out by the priest to bring about cleansing. Most commonly, these include reciting Hail Marys, prayers accompanied by rosary beads and other forms of Roman Catholic absolution or pardon. These are some of the terms by way of our first point that we just need to get a little bit of a handle on as we look at this particular subject. Just a glossary of terms. Now let's, that was like the fifth introduction really, now let's go into specifically point number two, the definition of sola scriptura, the bottom base foundation. Turn in your Bibles 
Probably a good idea to go to the Bible since we're talking about it. 2 Timothy chapter 3, please, if you would. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Find with me verse 14, if you would. Paul writing to Timothy, who is at Ephesus at the time in the role of an elder or pastor. He writes in verse 14 of chapter 3, 2 Timothy. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every Good work. This portion of scripture is a favorite of the reformers and it is critical to our understanding of this concept of sola scriptura, scripture alone. So, what does it mean? What does this concept mean? What did the reformers mean when they said sola scriptura? Not what do we think? What did it mean? It meant that the revealed word of God. The Bible alone is instructive for the faith and practice of the Christian. That's what they meant. This means, in other words, the scripture is complete, it is authoritative, and it is true. That's what they meant. They meant this is the book that leads and guides and governs the life of the Christian. Not external matters, not the church, not the pope, not the pastor, but the book here in front of us, the scripture, is the governing book for the believer. And this doctrine, you must understand, church, this doctrine that they upheld, this flag that they waved with all their might, was in stark contrast to the centuries of Roman Catholic traditions which were considered superior to the Scripture. Now, let me take a moment to say that traditions can be wonderful things, but traditions can also be deadly when they usurp the authority of the scriptures. See, sola scriptura does not nullify the concept of church traditions. Rather, it gives a solid foundation on which to base our church traditions and to distinguish whether or not they are moral or preference. Following forward from this, there are non-biblical church traditions and there are anti-biblical church traditions and they are different non-biblical church traditions are without morality in and of themselves but they become moral when those non-biblical traditions are made to be prerequisites for grace for faith and for salvation Anti-biblical church traditions stand directly opposed to the word of God. Non-biblical and anti-biblical. Non-biblical are without morality attached. Uh, Anti-biblical are morally opposed to the scriptures. And they must be eradicated from the church. Let me give you some examples here that might help. A non-biblical over here tradition. Today is the first Sunday of the month. 
we are going to have church lunch today because on the first Sunday of the month, we have church lunch. That is a non-biblical tradition. Now, if we change that, there might be a few who get upset, but it's not a moral dilemma. Not for the, well, it might be for the person who's concerned about it or upset about it, but it's not a moral problem. And, but if in a hundred years from now, if the Lord tarries, we are still having lunch on the first Sunday of the month and people are saying to change this situation is a salvific issue, an issue of salvation that has become a moral issue as opposed to simply a non-biblical tradition. A non-biblical tradition that I, to be honest, used to uh, uphold very strongly and I think it became a moral problem was that a preacher must always wear a tie. I've come from a background in many cases where a preacher must wear a tie and that become, that is a non-biblical tradition that became a moral dilemma because then whenever I got up the front here at the start, some of you will remember that, I sort of... You know, sort of felt a bit naked behind here because this was open and it wasn't right. But that was a non-biblical tradition. Now let me give you an example of anti-biblical, opposed to scripture. Confession of sin to a priest. That there is anti-biblical and it is a tradition of the Catholic Church founded in what they say is a biblical truth, but it is not. It is anti, it is opposed to the scripture. Another one would be the necessity of infant baptism for regeneration and removal of original sin. If you go to a Roman Catholic situation and you bring your newborn child, they are going to say, we must baptize that child in order to cleanse them from original sin. That is an anti-biblical tradition of the Catholic Church. I hope you understand what I'm saying. This morning, if you need more clarification, chat with me afterwards. Sola Scriptura is the foundation stone upon which all of the gospel truth stands. Sola Gracia, Sola Fide and Sola Christo cannot exist if we do not have a firm foundation on Sola Scriptura. That must be the basis because that is the means by which we know the gospel. A failure to believe that the Bible is God-breathed and profitable for teaching and for reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness will bring about grave error and rob us of the truth that God has revealed for his people. And so that, if you like, is the definition of sola scriptura. Thirdly, this morning, and where I need to park for just a little while, is the implications of sola scriptura. What I'm saying here is the nuts and the bolts of this concept of sola scriptura. What were the reformers implying when they said we uphold sola scriptura? What did they mean by that? It's all one thing to say, okay, we understand the Bible's the foundation and it's this and it's this and it's this. But what did they mean? What were the implications of sola scriptura? And uh, it wouldn't be a message of mine if there weren't some subpoints. So here we go. Number one, they meant that the scripture is divine. All scripture is breathed out by God. We are saying here that the reformers believed in the verbal plenary inspiration of the scriptures. Don't be concerned that you don't understand necessarily what that means. Here's what it means. 
They meant that the Bible in its original autograph or manuscripts was the precise words of God recorded by those to be his scribes. If there is any doubt whatsoever in that regard, then you do not really have a faith to stand upon. If this is not the word of God, if that was not God breathed his inspiration, his words uh, that were uh, put onto manuscript at that time and then translated for us, we have grave, grave problems. And so they began by saying the scripture is first of all divine. Secondly, what they implied was that the scripture is complete. The word plenary that I used a moment ago means full or absolute. And in the context of the scripture, it refers to the whole Bible as being inspired, not simply portions of it. Now, I am very, I often go onto the internet, read about different churches in different areas, and I love to click on the little link that says statement of faith. Because in that statement of faith, what I am particularly interested in reading is their position on the scripture. There are some that have things that say like this. The Bible contains the word of God. When I read that, bells and alarms go off. Because what that means is that somewhere in here is God's word. Somewhere, I'm not sure exactly where it is. But some of this is God's word. This is the Bible, but some of it is actually the word of God. That is an incredibly dangerous and erroneous teaching. And the reformers were saying either it is or it isn't. Because who can determine which is and which is not part of the word of God if this is not the preserved word of God? Many denominations and sects today believe that the Bible simply contains the word of God, but they will not affirm the totality of the scriptures as the complete special revelation from God. Were Luther and Wycliffe and others here today, they would tell us we affirm the totality of the scriptures. We are not interested in the apocryphal books. We are interested in the 66 books found in our Bible. That is the word of God. Thirdly, They implied and affirmed that the scripture is authoritative. This is perhaps the biggest problem and the biggest chasm in the Reformation. This third point spearheaded the Reformation. It widened the chasm between the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformers. Here's why. The Roman Catholic Church believed in the church traditions, the papal declarations, as inerrant and infallible, and Catholic literature all held higher esteem and authority than the scripture in that day. One can recall a time when the Lord Jesus said to the Pharisees, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down in Mark 7. Martin Luther and others believed that the scripture was the complete and final court of appeal for all matters of faith and practice. This was to govern the life of the Christian. In fact, when Luther was commanded to, uh, to recant, 
This is his reply. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures, I will not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. They believe the scripture is authoritative. Fourthly, the scripture is perspicuous. By the way, I'm not choosing big words on purpose. These have specific meanings and I hope I'm explaining them as I go. By perspicuous, we mean that the essential teachings of the gospel are plain to see. What we mean is that when you take the Bible, it is not all easy and plain to see. In fact, Peter says, Paul's words are hard to understand sometimes. And I agree, Paul's words are hard to understand sometimes. We're not saying the whole of the Bible is just so easy, it's just like reading a a novel. But what we are saying is that the scripture, when it speaks of its main theme, the salvation of sinners, is perfectly perspicuous. It is clear. It is not hard to understand. It's not mystical. God is not a God of confusion, we are told. Sola Scriptura teaches that the message of salvation, which is the primary theme of God's word, is not only for the elite and the academics, which is what was believed back in the day at the time of the Reformation. Paul wrote to Timothy, from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You need to understand the backdrop here, church, for a moment as to why this is so important. The Roman Catholic Church historically forbade the laity or the populace, the congregations of their day from owning or reading a Bible. It was in Latin, the Vulgate, and only the religious elite could read that. Only the academics could read that. Only the church leaders were permitted to divulge and interpret the scriptures. What this led to was a plethora of erroneous teaching. It's a little bit like if we had a Greek New Testament here and I knew my Greek New Testament and you didn't, I could read for you all these wonderful Greek words and explain what they mean as how I see fit and what I want you to do. You are puppets on a string to a person who can, uh, who can read that original language. That's exactly what was happening in the Roman Catholic Church. The Vulgate was read. Everybody sat there and just looked... Like, wow, this is interesting. We have no idea what it says. And then the priest would go ahead and explain what it meant however they wanted to. And whatever the papal authority and declarations had been made in the background, that's what was put forward, regardless of correct interpretations. What a time in history. This is why the Tyndales and the Wycliffs and the Luthers and others were so concerned and committed to getting the scripture into the common language of the people. Listen to what William Tyndale said. I perceived how that it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the scripture were plainly laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. I defy the Pope. And all his laws, if God spare my life ere many years, I will cause a boy who drives the plough to know more of the scriptures than you do. Wow. It's no wonder 
they took him and burned him at the stake. Before we move on, it's important to note that the reformers also asserted that the scripture's most effective means of interpretation, which they called the analogy of faith principle, was to compare the scriptures with the scriptures. That's how they believed you would find what the scripture was teaching. Here is a difficult passage. Where else in the Bible do I find that same instance of information that I can look at? And they believed in what they have called here the analogy of faith principle. And we ought to follow that, ought we not? Before we pick up our commentaries and, uh, and these wise men today who have great insights into the word, before we do that, let's look to the scriptures for another portion that will give us similar teaching and see if it becomes more clear. The scripture is the best interpreter of scripture. Had we more time this morning, I would tell you about the timelessness of the scripture. I'll tell you about the translation and transmission of the scripture. But we don't have any more time. So I just want to share one more. One more implication made by these reformers in solar scripture. And of all of them, this is critical. Number five, sub point, the scripture is Christ centered. The reformers lived in a time when the Bible was only available to the religious elite and the majority of the teaching provided by these priests and monks was church centered, tradition driven, pope inspired messages. The reformation was largely about a return to sola scriptura, but it also included a renewed understanding of the centrality and supremacy of Jesus Christ. The Apostle proves that Jesus Christ is the central theme in the Scriptures. In John 5.39 where he says, You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness of me, Jesus said. And the Reformers knew that in returning to the Scriptures and putting the Scriptures in the hands of the people, they would soon discover again the supremacy and the sufficiency and the beauty and the doctrines of Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church. I thought this was interesting. I hope I haven't got too many Lutherans in the room that I'm about to offend. But it's interesting to note that when Martin Luther's, Martin Luther's followers began to call themselves Lutherans, he was horrified. Listen to his view about himself and Christ. He says, The first thing I ask is that people should not make use of my name and should not call themselves Lutherans, but Christians. What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 would not tolerate Christians calling themselves Pauls or Peters but only Christians. How did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, Come to the point where people call children of Christ by my evil name. What did he think of Jesus Christ? He thought he was the Lord of the church and Luther was nothing more than a stinking bag of maggots. He had a real understanding of his own sinfulness before a holy and a righteous God. We see the heart of Luther for Christ and that men and women would follow Christ, not him. He was quick to turn the spotlight from himself to the scriptures and to the saviour. And so this morning as we draw to a close in this study, I want to leave you with one final aspect 
And you all know that's a, a joke because there's one final aspect with a couple of sub points. But one, one final aspect that is critical for us to understand this sola scriptura. And it's the fifth and final point. This is not the implications of the reformers. Now it's the application of sola scriptura for us now, today. What difference we're asking? What does it matter? Why does it matter? Why is sola scriptura foundational? And why must it remain that way for us here today in 2017, 500 years after the Reformation? What are the applications? Well, the first application, and there's only two. Well, there's only two I could put in here because of time. There's plenty more. The first application for us today, church, is the exceeding value of the Scriptures. If you've lost it with all that information download, regain your attention for just a moment and realise this. The floor of history is stained red with the blood of countless men and women who believed in sola scriptura and died in an effort to bring the word of God to us. The floor stained with blood. I had the privilege and it was both a privilege and devastating to read some that I would love to have included here, some of the lives of these people who gave everything, not just their money, not just the manuscripts that they had copied, but their very life to provide us as the laity, you as the congregation, the populace as a whole, a copy of the scriptures. So valuable was it to them that they would die for it. It's a little bit like, I believe it was Ezra who writes Psalm 119 and says in verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. In, in 47, verse 47, he says, I find delight in your word. In verse 72, he says, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In verse 97, he says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He says in verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. If nothing else is achieved in this message this morning, if everything else falls on a deaf ear, my prayer is that every person in this place and those who might watch via our simulcast would have a renewed love and appreciation like that of the reformers for the word of God. What a precious treasure we have. Let me give you a, the, the briefest summary as it comes to the history of the scriptures. The translation of the scriptures into English began largely with John Wycliffe in the 14th century. Next came William Tyndale, whose Herculean efforts amidst great tribulation still to this day make up nearly 90% of the King James Bible. A recent study just found this out, that William Tyndale's efforts some 600 years ago, or thereabouts, 500 years ago, all of his efforts today still make up 89% of what you will read in the King James Bible. That's amazing. Tyndale's work was the first rendering into English directly from the Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic. Tyndale experienced all manner of trial and tribulation and was finally betrayed by a friend which led to his martyrdom on October the 6th, 1536. 
He was strangled and then burned at the stake. His last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. This prayer was answered three years later when Henry VIII published the Great Bible in 1539. Martin Luther, Miles Coverdale, John Rogers and so many other names played an important role in bringing the scriptures to the populace in their native tongue. All of these abandoned the notion that the Bible was simply for the religious leaders and many of them paid dearly for this decision, often with their lives. My prayer is that God would give us an appreciation for men and women of yesteryear who sacrificed all to bring us God's word, but also to have this as a treasure in our life more valuable than all other things outside of Jesus Christ. We have the word of God preserved in our native tongue that we can read at any moment. So the exceeding value of the scriptures, the second and last application for us this morning is the timeless truth amidst a landscape of revelations. The timeless truth amidst a landscape of revelations. God's word has stood the test of time. It has had enemies in the form of emperors, dictators, generals, religious leaders, and many others have sought to destroy and annul its power. I've got a whole book almost of printout of information in my office if you ever want to read about those who have tried to bring about the destruction of the word of God. But if I may say to us graciously and kindly this morning, today the greatest enemy of the scripture outside of Satan himself is the contemporary church. Because they are largely seduced by leaders who claim to have special revelations, visions, dreams, prophecies and words from the Lord for us today. These deceivers assert that God's revealed word in the scripture is incomplete. It's irrelevant. It's time stamped. They instruct us to perform tasks that are in opposition to the word of God and their doctrines oppose that which the apostles and prophets wrote under the inspiration of God. In fact, the half brother of Jesus Christ himself, Jude, wrote this. Beloved. Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered for all the saints. Because certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, he writes in verse 8, Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their own dreams defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. One of the greatest problems we have in modern Christendom is all the extras that we've put on to the scripture. 
All the different revelations and prophecies that are going around. I was just reading a book just recently. Uh, I got an email to pastor at mccbc.com.au the other day about uh, this great revival that is going to take place today in another place based upon a particular prophecy that was made. And in that prophecy are clear indications against the word of God. It actually states things that are not even, that are actually anti-scripture. Oh, church, we must be ever so careful to test everything against the word of God that we may know what is true, what is right and what is wrong. If we do not have sola scriptura as our foundation, the rest of this falls to pieces. There are so many more things that I would love to say this morning, but time is our enemy. Suffice to say this in conclusion, 500 years ago, A 33-year-old preacher hammered 95 theses to a door in Wittenberg. 500 years later, this 33-year-old preacher wants us to understand that the scripture is still our foundation for all of faith and all of practice. Church, let us defend this truth with our lives if necessary. Sola Scriptura. Father, thank you for your word Thank you that you have given to us this governing guidebook, this manual for life, this book that we can turn to that speaks of all that relates to faith and practice in the life of a Christian. Thank you that we know that the scriptures are divine. We know that there is inerrancy in the autographs, the original manuscripts, without fault on any level. Thank you that you have given the Bible to us in our own language. Thank you for those men and women of yesteryear who sacrificed so much in order that we would have a copy of this prized possession, this treasure beyond worth. Lord, help us to love the Scriptures. Help us to love even more the Saviour of the Scriptures as it points to him on every page. Help us to have a heart like that of Luther and Wycliffe and Tyndale and Rogers and others who their desire was that there would be freedom for the people to study and learn the Scriptures in their own homes and to study it with their families and to devote their lives to meditating and obeying it. Lord, help us today to have that same mentality. Help us if we can in some way today to have these truths illuminated in a greater sense that we would go from here with a greater desire and passion and pursuit of your word and a thankfulness for the way in which you've preserved it for us today here in Alexandra in 2017. May you be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.